Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Have you often thought that your secret barbecue sauce deserved a place on the grocery store shelf? Do you wish you could recreate a favorite restaurant dish or special cocktail at home? On this week's show, we'll introduce you to the pros who know just how to make that happen. We begin with Louisiana's spiciest new business, Louisiana Pepper Exchange. Founder and CEO Chris White is here with the story of the amazing engineering feat he achieved that resulted in the very unique business he runs today. Then we visit with research chef Ross Robertson, who knows just how to make your favorite restaurant's signature drink or dish into a retail commodity. A dream that Warren Chapiton of Juan's Flying Burrito is currently pursuing. Warren is ready to go beyond his restaurants and introduce the world to Juan's unique Creole Mexican flavor. While Krista Cotton of El Guapo Bitters is making every home bartender capable of mixing great professional style cocktails. We're tracking the path of great dishes and drinks from restaurant to retail and beyond on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Chris White, founder and CEO of Louisiana Pepper Exchange. You might call Louisiana native Chris White an overachiever. After all, he graduated from West Point with an engineering degree, served honorably in the Army, and after completing his service, quickly became an indispensable member of his father's firm, Chemitech. Early on, Chris was tasked with solving a major problem for the global hot sauce industry, specifically the transport of pepper mash. Pepper mash is exactly what it sounds like, an assortment of chili peppers that are mashed together with salt and aged until they break down chemically. Pepper mash is a very difficult product to handle because it's got a high solids content and it's a fermenting product. So it's actively fermenting through the entire life cycle of the pepper mash to include when it's in transit. When Chris joined Chemitech, pepper mash was shipped using flexi tanks a bladder that fit into a container for transporting large quantities of liquid. While in transit, the mash would continue to ferment, so solids and liquids would separate from each other. This made it very difficult to pump out the pepper mash once the flexi tanks reached their destination. The problem with a flexi tank is there was no way to be able to mix the pepper mash back to a homogeneous state once it did separate in transit. To solve this problem, Chris engineered the Agi tank. 
This technology uses a series of injection points on the top of the bladder to mix the mash up again, allowing it to flow freely at the unloading point. His invention led to a whole new business opportunity, the Louisiana Pepper Exchange. We met Chris at his warehouse on Felicity and Chapatulas to get the full story of this very spicy company. Everything we have done since I've been at Chemitech, because we were always problem solvers, has developed out of helping someone solve a problem. So when we did this agitank system uh, to ship pepper mash, we were trying to solve a problem for a customer. It was really done uh, to help them out with no real ambition of turning it into a business. Once we uh, were able to solve the problem, refine it, make it commercially viable, uh, then uh, it was, became obvious that we could do something with it. We could uh, start shipping with it. We could start generating revenue by producing the product. Um, we could solve other people's problems. So really it's just all born out of problem solving and everything has evolved from there. Now, originally, if I understand it, Louisiana Pepper Exchange wasn't a retail business. Let's talk about the role you've played and still continue to play as um, a packer and a maker for other big companies. Yeah, so really it started, once we started, it's a really funny story. When we first started shipping, we weren't really buying the pepper mash. We weren't contracting the peppers to be grown. We were selling packaging and doing shipping. So we did that in 2004, we started that. We were shipping large volumes of pepper mash. And I don't know if you remember, but around 2009, 2010, uh, hot sauce really started taking off. And not just your traditional hot sauce. People were demanding spicier hot sauces, something fun and innovative. So people started actually calling us and saying, hey, we hear you ship lots of pepper. Can we buy some from you? These were smaller hot sauce guys. We'd like to do pepper mash in bulk. And I said, sure, I, th I think we can do that. We can send you 52,000 pounds in our Agi tank. <laughs> and they would look, look at me or be on the phone. They'd go silent. And they'd say, oh, my gosh, I need like 80 pounds, right? So they were either growing it locally or getting it from a farmer's market or sourcing it somewhere not very reliably. So uh, it dawned on us that we could solve another problem, okay? We could start taking our system contracting uh, growers and farmers to produce a pepper mash for us, bring it here very cost effectively with our own intellectual property, unload it in our own facility, store it in bulk, and then repack it as an ingredient for hot sauce makers, sauce makers, um, any other people that are using pepper as an ingredient in their food production. So we started selling industrial pepper ingredients and that's how we started. Now, the range of peppers that you deal with and that you have the ability to deal with is enormous. That's correct. So it's, you know, we started shipping mostly peppers that are used in high volumes for traditional types of hot sauces. So that would be cayenne, some jalapenos, uh, some habaneros. And as that industry, that craft and gourmet hot sauce industry, which we provide a large percentage of the uh, pepper mash for started evolving and demanding more creative and more spicy peppers. We started then having these growers, we contracted these growers to grow many different varieties of peppers. 
Fortunately for us, our intellectual property, our packaging system, is most effective when used in a seed container coming from overseas. So, and we had relationships with growers in South and Central America, so we started contracting them to make all kinds of different peppers that people were demanding. So, traditionally those guys were just growing other things. So, mm -hmm. we introduced them to uh, an understanding of the U.S. market, and they started growing peppers for us. So. You know, we, we go anything from a jalapeno and a cayenne to a scotch bonnet to a serrano to some of the super hot stuff like ghost pepper and reaper and scorpion, ahi amarillo, which is a pepper that's really on trend right now. When Louisiana Pepper Exchange started in 2010, it was based out of Baton Rouge. But as the company grew, they found the Crescent City to be a much better fit. After the historic 2016 flood in Baton Rouge put the company underwater, they found a home just a stone's throw from the port of New Orleans. When containers with pepper mash are offloaded from ships, their trucks travel only a few hundred yards to reach the warehouse. Having that location is another reason that we're so efficient with our supply chain that we can bring pepper mash in so cost effectively. So being here is extremely important to our business. Chris, let's talk about how other consumers are using your purees because this truly is a unique product and nothing like it has ever existed on the market before. Explain through an end user's point of view why this is so special. It's really unique because it is an all-natural product that's an ingredient. So it's not a sauce, it's an ingredient. We're taking a, a natural product, a pepper, we're going through a natural preservation process um, and we are now providing the consumer the closest thing they could get to a fresh pepper. Uh, because as you know, peppers have a very short shelf life, so if you buy a fresh pepper, they don't last very long, there's a lot of spoilage, a lot of waste when you de-stem and de-seed a pepper, a lot of that pepper gets thrown away. This product is shelf stable, um, it's very efficient, it can be used to spice up any recipe that you would ever make. Additionally, because we have all these different types of peppers that we do, some of the peppers that we offer are not traditionally available in a fresh form. So you would not be able to go to the grocery store and get a red habanero or a ghost pepper. Um, you know, we do chipotle, which is a whole different uh, twist on uh, the chipotle presentation. But there's more to come because, you know, we're working on some other varieties of peppers right now that we hope to be launching this fall or this winter that will allow people to experience cuisines from different parts of the world that maybe they wouldn't have access to normally. One of the reasons your story is so interesting to me is because when we're talking about food production, in my mind at least, you've sort of gone the opposite direction that many people usually go in. What made you decide to go after that end-use retail customer when so many people are already getting your product just in another form. I think it was a vision we had many years ago. We just didn't really know how to execute it. Um, we grew up really in the industrial space and uh, the evolution really kind of goes back to solving problems as we talked about before. So 
like restaurants is where we started. You know, we solved the problem for them by creating a cost-effective ingredient. And once we saw some success with that, it became obvious to us that probably the consumer at home would like to do the same thing. So we thought that we had a natural, uh, perfect solution for, for people to do that at home. Well, bravo. You are just Louisiana's newest pepper ambassador. And I am so tickled to be able to sit down with you and introduce you to our Louisiana Eats audience. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. We're honored for you to be here. That was Chris White founder and CEO of Louisiana Pepper Exchange. Coming up next, we meet Chef Ross Robertson, who turned signature dishes into retail offerings for restaurants across the Crescent City. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. of the lakefront airport, amid a swath of warehouses sited between the Industrial Canal and Downman Road, there's a company specializing in dry ingredient blends and mixes. You may not have heard of them, but if you dine out or make groceries in New Orleans, there's a good chance you've tasted flavors produced at their plant. We probably make between three and 700 different formulas at any given time. We do boils, we do lots of different flour blends, uh, biscuits, pancakes, fish fries, chicken fries, Creole seasonings, steak seasonings, pretty much anything you can imagine that's a dry blend we can probably do. Ross Robertson is the research and development chef at Gulf Coast Blenders, a company that has catered to restaurants and institutional food service for over 30 years. Whether they're creating all new flavor profiles or producing proprietary recipes in bulk, Gulf Coast Blenders plays an essential role in many a Crescent City commercial kitchen. We really are kind of a secret weapon for a majority of restaurants down here. For example, 
yesterday I was in the weigh out room helping them weigh out 10,000 pound batches of beignets. 10,000 pounds of beignet mix. How many beignets do you think that makes, chef? Probably around 30,000. <laughs> so that tells you how many places around here use our beignet mix. We joined Ross in his office at the Gulf Coast Blenders Warehouse to learn how the company turned signature dishes into retail offerings for local restaurants and beyond. But first, I wanted to know what motivated the Indiana native to lead this Louisiana test kitchen. Tell me, how did you end up as a research chef? Because the kitchen came calling to you early, huh? Yes, yes it did. Um, for me, playing around with that creative space has always been my passion. Starting out, I was in the food service industry. Back when I was a teenager, I was making pizzas at Pizza Hut and went to culinary school in Indianapolis and was fortunate enough to become a sous chef at a young age and work my way up to an executive chef, got sent up to the Detroit area. And even though some of those jobs were more corporate and I was bound by their menu restrictions, I was still flexing that creativity as much as I could. And once we had the opportunity to move down here during the pandemic, I tried to look for something a little more kitchen adjacent while I could still flex that creativity. And this opportunity arose and I fought for it and I'm really happy here now. So everything you do out here is a dry blend. It's all dry. Correct. I was most surprised to learn that restaurants with as few as just one door are often availing themselves of your services. Mm -hmm. So. Give me just the rundown on some reasons why someone would do that. Uh, number one is consistency, especially if you're a multi-unit. You need to be able to serve the same food in under each roof. And the other thing is it's very hard to find prep staff right now. So this is a way to cut down on their labor while also delivering the exact same product every time. How does the process work? So we have a whole process of how we do this and it's set out by stages for the whole team whether it's sales marketing the plant food safety so we all kind of jointly work together but a, a big part of that is the R&D process so I'm usually with the salesman speaking to the customer and trying to get a a control sample of what they want and then I'm back here playing around with my stand mixer and messing around with ingredients and a lot of times I build it from scratch first and just try to match a taste profile using my own taste buds and then I'll, I'll taste it around the plant, make sure that they like it and then I'll start diving into, okay, what little things can I tweak or what little ingredients can I change? But a lot of it is starting from the ground up. Is taste profile the only way that you go after conquering a mix? Taste profile is the one I'm most confident in, and it usually gets me close. But then you can use things like a sacometer that you can make a solution and measure how much sugar is in it. You can also get ones that do the same thing for salinity, so you can figure out your salt content. Then there's also things like taking the specific gravity of something in a solution and figuring that out too. But that requires a lot of math to figure out each component and their specific gravity. My goodness. Was math your strong suit in school? 
<laughs> there was a brief po moment in my life where I did go to Purdue for engineering, uh, but it didn't grab me, and that's why I'm in the kitchens. This is kind of an engineering job. It's, it's, it's as close to engineering as you get in a kitchen, I suppose. Yes, most definitely. It must be so exciting when you hit mm -hmm. that flavor mark and go, hey, I did it. So recently we had someone reach out to us with a certain secret recipe that they wanted us to try to mimic or, or copy so they could have something as a similar product for their chicken fry. That one was, uh, was a bit difficult because I was not only trying to match the taste, but I'm also trying to match the visual look before and after because I don't always know exactly how they're going to use this. They could be using it in a gravy. They could be using it on chicken. It may be their all-purpose for everything in the restaurant. And that one I had to really dive into the little minute details and also look at the original nutrition panel and do some math and figure out, all right, this is my range on my salt. This is probably where it's going to be. And I probably went through three or four iterations here before I had one that I was confident to send out. And we just heard back yesterday in our R&D meeting that the first one I sent out, they loved. Oh, that's So great. that's always a great feeling to know that I don't have to go back and work on it again. Uh, I'm totally willing to do that because I want to make sure that everyone's happy. That's, I've come from a hospitality background, so I'm always, I want the end user to be happy. But when I nail it first try, that's a really big point of pride for me. So Ross, tell me about the retail side of the business versus the uh, restaurant kitchen mm -hmm. side. So the retail side is uh, different in a few ways. It's, it's interesting. It really started booming right after COVID started up. And I understand why a lot of restaurants were not able to run at full capacity or at all. So they needed to find other revenue streams. And some of these restaurants do make some very interesting spice blends and we're happy to make them. But it's, it's a little bit different in the fact that we just can't throw something in a bag and ship it to them. We need to make sure that it's in a bottle, it's properly labeled, it's properly labeled with ingredient deck and nutrition profiles, which I also will write accordance to the FDA policies, which that was something that I had to learn when I got here, but I'm fairly well versed at it now. I th I'm very confident in doing those. We do really care about the ingredients we're putting in bottles. We don't want to put a lesser product out on the shelves or into our customers' hands. So sometimes we have to make a little bit of concessions where with our customers that yes, our prices may be slightly higher, but we actually are making a better product. For example, I did a crawfish butter for somebody recently and I had to use a 10th of the garlic that they normally use in their recipe because our garlic was had just so much more flavorful. So those things kind of throw me for a loop sometimes too. That's so interesting. How did you acquire all of the scientific knowledge that's necessary to pull off something like this? To be honest, it's, it's just my passion. I'm hungry for that knowledge and I'm constantly tasting and trying to learn new things. And if something comes across that I don't know about, I'm reaching out to people or doing searches, reading books and learning as much as I can because that's only going to make me do this better. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this fascinating mm -hmm. process. Yeah, it's it's definitely a whole team effort, and I'm just fortunate enough to be the first step in a big process. Chef Ross Robertson, research and development chef at Gulf Coast Blenders. As part of the L.H. Hayward Company, Gulf Coast Blenders is a supporter of Louisiana Eats. My name is Krista Cotton, and I'm the founder and CEO of New Orleans Beverage Group, which is the parent company of El Guapo, New Orleans contemporary craft cocktail bitter syrups and mixers company. Since the pandemic first forced restaurants and bars to close or scale back last year, many family-owned businesses, especially smaller ones, have struggled, while others have found creative ways to sustain themselves. Following a steep drop in sales in March 2020, Krista Cotton of New Orleans Beverage Group reacted with major changes to her company's business model. Her strategy, combined with changing circumstances and a little luck, helped the family business not only survive, but thrive. Today, their El Guapo line of cocktail bitters and syrups have become so popular that the business has outgrown its production facility on Chapatula Street, where it moved in 2019. And we thought at the time that this would give me three to five years to sort of figure out the recipes, the distribution, all the stuff, and then we would move. Then COVID hit, we changed our business model, our sales skyrocketed, and we outgrew the building in 10 months. <laughs> so now we are looking at other real estate, but we're working with what we've got right now. This is what we've got, so this is what we're doing. Louisiana Eats met Krista at the El Guapo facility, where she gave us a tour of their tightly packed operation. This is our inventory room, and we had envisioned it as an inventory room, but we thought it would hold everything. It does not. So all the inventory that won't fit in this room is actually just stacked on the, in the hallway. So if you're in here, we call we used to call this tonic town. It's where we kept all the tonic because it, in COVID, um, everyone, the, well, the president at the time said that if you took malaria medication and the, and the active ingredient in malaria medication is the same active ingredient in tonic, it's quinine. In COVID, the tonic sales went through the roof. We had one day at the early April where we sold $44,000 worth of tonic in one day because there was a press conference saying that if oh. you ingested this product, you would either not catch COVID or it could possibly cure you. So we were just, all we were doing is making as many batches of tonic as we possibly could to just keep up with the sales. It's a small space, so this is the best we could do. <laughs> what a bizarre reason bizarre. to have your business grow. So we put a disclaimer on there and we did get oh. hundreds of inquiries about that specifically. And we just said, you know, we're not medical doctors. We, we, this is for cocktails only, but you know, it did get our name out there in some way. And then we've continued to grow since. So, well, whatever it takes, girlfriend. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, Krista, now down to the nitty gritty of things. How do you actually 
manufacture your bitters and your syrups? What's special? What's the process <laughs> like? Okay, so bitters can be made in a myriad of different ways, but a lot of people are starting with neutral grain spirit, which can be derived from you know, wheat or barley or potato or corn, all these different things. Sometimes people know what it's made of, sometimes people don't, but they're using that, um, macerating it in spices and then extracting it, straining it and bottling it. And it, there's, it's really not a special formula and there's nothing special about the product or the process. We're paying attention to the input so that the end product is unique and special. And there's all of these um, flavor notes that you would find in higher end artisan spirits and higher end artisan wine to make a more refined product. So it all starts with the relationships with the farmers, uh, whether it's, you know, fruits and vegetables or that we're working with or different spices brought in for us. And then we take whatever that recipe is, whatever the ingredients are, and we put them in a big vat and we, different recipes work different ways, but you basically will heat them up to a certain temperature, extract the flavors that you need from those ingredients. To stabilize our bitters, we use non-GMO vegetable-based glycerin, so we'll add that to the recipe. And instead of a neutral grain spirit, which most of them are alcoholic, and when you taste them, it will burn your tongue, and the, the burn is what you feel before you taste anything. That's not a part of our process. We don't use that. We use glycerin, and then once it's extracted and temperature controlled, it take, it's about a two-day process to get all of that done. We'll then strain it, uh, and then once it's you know heated, filtered, We'll put it in our bottling machine and then we bottle all of them in four ounce bottles and that's how how bitters are done <laughs> what is the the infusion process of making the syrups like tell me how it's different from producing bitters so just the way that your favorite craft cocktail bar or bartender would make a very small batch of a syrup behind the bar to use in your cocktails we're replicating that in larger batches the reason why bartenders and restaurateurs love our product is because there's consistency across the board. So you don't have to worry about your morning bartender does it differently than your evening bartender. It's, it's all consistent, but it's still really high quality. And we're following the same principles that they would be following if they were making it themselves. And there's really no other company that has approached this problem the way that we have. So not adding in things like high fructose corn syrup and even just extracts. A lot of companies will go and buy you know, a mystery barrel of some sort of chemical extract and that's how they're getting their strawberry flavor or whatever kind of flavor. Uh, we're not doing that. We're, we're really using you know, the original ingredient and trying to honor that and making the highest quality product that we can using the ingredients that we find and source. And the sourcing is probably the thing I'm the most passionate about and it's what I pay the most attention to. Well, Krista, thank you so much for welcoming us into your little spot. I can't wait till you expand and I can come visit again. I know we'll have to do a part two. And I'm so grateful to you all for coming. Thank you. I know in COVID times, it feels like we never get to see each other. So being able to see someone in person is really exciting for me, too. So thank you. That was Krista Cotton founder and CEO of New Orleans Beverage Group, the parent company of El Guapo. What is gastronomy? And where does the term molecular gastronomy figure in? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Let's all Louisiana. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 miles north of New Orleans' French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. This fall includes many outdoor festivals, the weekend beats and eats, and upcoming holiday events. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is gastronomy? And where does the term molecular gastronomy figure in? Gastronomy may be one of the most misused and misunderstood terms in the culinary landscape. Brilia Savarin, famed 18th century epicure and author of the world-changing tome, Physiology of Taste, first defined gastronomy as the knowledge and understanding of all that relates to man as he eats. Chef Paul Bocuse is known as the father of gastronomy. He earned that lofty title during his 50-plus year career, creating the Nouvelle Cuisine movement by combining classic concepts in new ways, such as his fabled black truffle soup, which featured foie gras and chicken broth enveloped in puff pastry. Perhaps the big confusion over the word gastronomy originates in the 1980s when the word molecular began to precede gastronomy to describe the cutting-edge culinary techniques introduced in the late 20th century. For instance, foam, a technique that combines air into a sauce, allowing cooks to incorporate various tastes without changing the sauce's physical makeup. Various things from soda siphons to chemical stabilizers were frequently used to accomplish that trick. Surely you remember when foam became quite the thing and was often taken to ridiculous extremes in the early days of molecular gastronomy. As for my personal gastronomic view, give me those classic Bocuse-style mother sauces and please... Hold the foam. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Sous aucun prétexte, je ne veux avoir de réflexe malheureux. Il faut que tu m'expliques un peu mieux. Comment te dire adieu? Mon cœur de silex.
Hey, I'm Warren Chalbaton, president over here at Juan's Flying Burrito. Hi, I'm Jay Morris, and I am also one of the owners of Juan's Flying Burrito. A New Orleans institution, Juan's Flying Burrito first began serving its signature Creole Mexican fare in 1997. Since then, the company has expanded to four locations across the Crescent City. As the pandemic has changed the way our city consumes, like many restaurants, Juan's has embraced alternative ways to make a profit, including a new retail spice line. We joined Juan's founder and president, Warren Chapaton, and co-owner Jay Morris at the original Flying Burrito location on Magazine Street. I began by asking Warren how and why he felt the city was ready for Juan's Flying Burrito when it opened a quarter century ago. Believe it or not, in 1996, New Orleans was made up of a lot of really nice restaurants and then a lot of like kitchenettes and corner stores and things of that nature. The uh, middle market uh, restaurant, as I would call it, really did not exist at the time. Um, I was originally from New Orleans. I'd spent 15 years in Atlanta. In Atlanta, there was only a few high-end restaurants and lots of middle market restaurants. I worked in a couple of different concepts in Atlanta that were that type, and we felt like uh, New Orleans was ripe for that type of concept, uh, something that was casual, where you could come as you are, that everybody could enjoy, that was uh, value-oriented. And uh, we also had been working in restaurants in Atlanta that supported the touring musicians so they could always work at a place and have a job when they came back from uh, being on tour. And so we wanted to bring that also into the uh, marketplace here. We're just a punk rock burrito shop. So how did you decide on the type of cuisine that you all were going to offer? It seemed like at the time um, there wasn't a lot of that type of food in New Orleans, which I would call uh, gringo Mexican. Gringo's doing <laughs> our take on it, you know, with a little New Orleans, a little Caribbean thrown in. Tell me about the reception to the restaurant. When you all first opened up, what was it like? What were things that you heard from people? I don't know, Jay, you have some thoughts? So I, I wasn't here right when they opened. I'm not an original owner. Um, I started working in June of 97 with these guys. I, uh, I quit my job as a cook at Commander's to come over here and take a break and wash some dishes. And I ne you know, ended up never leaving and eventually buying into the concept. So. I came in February after they opened, and it was kind of a unique concept in New Orleans. Uh, you know, I'm from here, and I used to go to Kuko's as a kid. Um, there was, what, Vaqueros on Maple Street. There was Santa Fe. There, there just were not that many options. There were no real, like, rock and roll kind of restaurants happening in the town. So it was, it was super interesting. Um, there were always artists and kids uh, hanging out here, especially in the early days. You know, we had tagged the walls. Yeah, you're right on the walls. Uh, we had Positive Space Gallery was right next door. Um, it was a really interesting scene. It was certainly uh, not as developed in this neighborhood then. Um, and so it felt really rough. And a lot of the makers and artisans of New Orleans were living in this neighborhood at that time. Um, so it was fun. And how did it grow? You know, we were we started off as a counter service establishment, um, and so people would have to wait in line, and we would have uh, funky little postcards that people sent to us would be the table markers um, that we would send a food runner out with the food to deliver. It took two or three years, but eventually we got to a spot where, you know, people were waiting 
so long to make those orders that we had to move to table service. And then shortly after that, we, we found that people were still waiting a long time just to get in the door. And we felt like we needed another location to help with some of those crowds get in to, to see what we were doing. With that in mind, um, New Orleans is colloquial as far as neighborhoods go. And so people would come in and be like, oh, we have to go to the garden district. You know, we live in mid city. We come <laughs> over here anyway, but we're not garden district people. We're not uptown people. We're downtown people or we're mid city people. Can't we have one in mid city? <laughs> and so you, so the call. you just have to do what you have to do. So basically, Whatever the customer says, we just try to go with the flow. It's incredible to have that relationship with your customers like you do. I mean, we're New Orleanians. We like to go out and party just as much as anybody else does. So we are friends with a lot of our customers. And people like what they like. They choose something on the menu. They stick with it. They always want it. They want to like go to Tulane or Loyola or UNO or whatever school they go to, Xavier, and then they they come back to town and they want that same thing, the same way they had it 10 years before. So I think there's a combination between, oh, they made it their place, one of their haunts, and then they come back for exactly what they wanted always. I do have to ask you one more question too. Why is the burrito flying? Well, I mean, the music influence, you know, the Grant Parsons Flying Burrito Brothers, and my name is Warren, and a girl I was dating a while ago, uh, her mom thought she was dating a Mexican guy named Juan. <laughs> so maybe I am, I am Juan, but we are all Juan. <laughs> we are all Juan. Yes, and that's, that's how we uh, feel at Juan's too. It's a, it's a neutral ground kind of place. Everybody's welcome. Tell me a little bit about your pandemic experience. How's it been going around here? Uh, I can say that we feel uh, pretty fortunate to still be operating. Um, all of our stores are open. Um, I mean, it was it was pretty rough going. Uh, I want to I want to turn over to Warren because he's the one who came up with um, the strategy for how we were going to reopen, keep our staff members and customers safe, and uh, you know inspire the confidence that that got our employees back in the door uh, and led us through it. Well. Um we took a, a mental break first off. After that little bit of a break, we decided, hey, let's try to get our core, core, core people back to work and then figure out who else is willing and able. The main thing was keeping people happy and healthy, giving them the information, um, sharing what we can and meeting or exceeding, meaning, hey, just because the government says you can go to 75% seating, well, we discuss it with our staff, with our managers and say, well, you know what? We're not ready for that. Let's stay at 25%. Let's just stay at to go pick up. So we kind of chose our own path within the guidelines the entire time. So in order to compensate for some of that percentage of inevitably lost revenue, you have decided to stick your toe into the retail business now? 
Well, fortunately, a lot of people have helped out by buying gift cards online, things of that nature. We rebuilt our website just so that we have a little bit more of an online merchandise presence. And then Jay spearheading, getting the um, spice line out there. So you already had these spices um, in use in your kitchens, right? We use them every day. Um, we have, I think, nine proprietary spent blends now. The oldest ones uh, being the black bean seasoning, the pinto bean seasoning, and our house blend seasoning, which is really that Creole flavor that we, that we add to our shrimp and our chicken. It's like a New Orleans Creole seasoning, so to speak, but our own little take on it. And now we have, uh, so we have our own uh, blackened seasoning for, you know, blackened fish tacos. We have a queso spice that, you know, we use, we make our queso from scratch. So we got to flavor it up with something that's going to, you know, make it acceptable to the locals, have enough flavor and heat uh, that everybody loves it. Um, Yellow rice. Yellow rice mix. We have as well Jeff's jerk seasoning, one of our longtime chefs, 20 plus years, Jeff Austin, uh, developed it for us. He's a big fan of really spicy flavors, so he developed this jerk seasoning for us that is just fantastic. So all, all of those will be coming into these uh, smaller containers like you see in front of you, Poppy. Um, you know, with our bean seasonings, we'll hopefully be packaging them with the camellia beans. Uh, we use some other uh, locally sourced products. We use a lot of the Cajun Chef products, um, and they go literally into almost every recipe we use, so they would be included in that. And hopefully we'll have like a little gift kit that people can pick up uh, either in our stores or online and you know make at home or send to friends and family that are far away. So what's the future like for Wands? What are y'all looking forward to? We're gonna expand around the Gulf Coast into say Pensacola Marketplace. It's a fun little hip town like New Orleans. They have tourist season, but they also have a pretty nice little art scene and a music scene over there and maybe some destination locations. Uh, I know Jay wants to go to Vegas or Amsterdam. <laughs> Follow the hard rock model. <laughs> well, this has just been such a wonderful eye-opening lesson about this very important homegrown New Orleans business. I am so grateful to you all for taking the time to talk with us and show us all how we really are all one. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you, Poppy. Warren Chapaton and Jay Morris of Juan's Flying Burrito in New Orleans. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. The rollicking fun at Tujax continues this fall with special holiday-themed drag queen brunches taking place on the last Sunday of every month. Reservations are available for November 28th and December 26th. Drag queen brunch is guaranteed to be the perfect antidote to any holiday blues. Learn more by calling the restaurant at 504 525-8676. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>